Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So, uh, <clears throat> so if for Irenaeus, his hermeneutic was also his soteriology, we say that for for Origen, his hermeneutic is also his metaphysics. Yes, his his hermeneutics is his metaphysics is his soteriology. Okay. That if you read the Bible rightly, you're going to encounter Christ, and encountering Christ is salvific. His hermeneutic is 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 fundamentally incarnational. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But run it down for us. Well, I was just giving a shorthand of what you were just saying. That is, is that his his metaphysics are incarnational. His hermeneutics are are incarnational. His theology proper for him is incarnational, because of the reasons that you've been describing. I don't know if you all are aware. You know, metaphysics has become kind of a a, a bad word because metaphysics, in fact, is going to capture theology, not something like Origin is doing but a kind of crude metaphysical understanding. And so the value in reading somebody and understanding somebody like Origen, this may be difficult, but we're also then, I think, bypassing and answering very modern theological problems, that this is the failure of modern theology, I think, is in the area of metaphysics. And what Origen is saying, Jesus, you know, Christ, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son constitutes our metaphysical understanding. We can certainly build upon that. And, of course, this is what I think the Cappadocian Fathers, what Maximus, they're, they're going to see the genius of origin and build upon that genius. Our next week, we're going to look at Augustine. And, of course, Augustine, you, you have to be careful what you say about Augustine, but he does not believe in the notion of apocatastasis or the idea of theosis or deification. He's going to turn on origin. Nobody can reject origin whole cloth because origin has just sort of created the whole world so that you know you can talk about Augustine as being very much shaped by origin too. But there are parts of origin that he's going to explicitly reject. This is an insult to the Western half of the church, I guess. But I think we move backward with Augustine. Again, you know, the guy's a genius, so he's... But in terms of his antagonism to origin, I think that is true. Let me give this final quote. This is from Bear. Origin's monotheism, then, is not that of later philosophical deism, not even a Trinitarian theism, with God considered in or by himself or as three prior to and independent of rational beings. It is rather a biblical monarchical monotheism in which God is seen as presiding over the heavenly court. This is a key passage, right, Matt? Psalms 82.1. God is in the congregation of the gods. This is the vision of God that pervades the scriptures throughout the Old Testament and even increasing in the literature of the Second Temple Judaism and apocalyptic works. To the New Testament proclamation that the crucified and risen Christ 
has been exalted to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3, in the throne room beheld by John in his apocalypse, in which the one who sits on the throne and the slain lamb are offered blessing and honor and glory into the ages of ages. Let me put it simplistically. How is God's supremacy? How is God's all-powerfulness? How is God's deity established? It's not established in some sort of isolated understanding of who God is apart from creation. And this is the picture, this is the significance of the psalm passage. It's understood in light of creation. And so this will be the continual refrain in origin. The God and Father, Christ his Son, and God the Savior, the Holy Spirit, and all rational intellectual beings are held together in the flow of one continuous sentence, expressing one movement from God through Christ, through the Spirit, through whom all rational beings in return send forth praise to God. It is moreover an everlasting and more strictly timeless hymn that the servants of God's creatures who have come into being distinct from the uncreated God offered to their Lord. Bear here again goes back to talking, and I can do this a little bit because I don't know that all of you were there in the John class, that the story of Jesus is not a kind of interruption in the biography of God. So the presentation of the divine print, uh, titles of Christ in, uh, on first principles is expressive of his divine nature, was not a treatment of the pre-incarnate word. Bear's point, there is no, in the early literature, no notion of a pre-incarnate logos. He says, I've never found that phrase. Who sub- in other words, it's not that who subsequently at a certain point in the economy becomes incarnate. Oh, you got the pre-incarnate and the incarnate. As Rowan Williams strikingly put it, and as we have will have caused to consider, the existence of Jesus is not an episode in the biography of the Word. The cross of Christ is an eternal fact about God. I think you could say the life of Christ is an eternal fact of, about God. Origen says as much in On First Principles. Let me read this passage. This is fairly it's lengthy, but, but it's a, a, a really interesting passage. The only begotten Son of God, therefore, through whom, as the previous origin is saying, in the previous course of discussion has shown, all things were made visible and invisible. Colossians 1.16, according to the mind of Scripture, both made all things and loves what he made. Wisdom 11.24. For as he himself, the invisible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, he invisibly bestowed upon all rational creatures a participation in himself, in such a way that each one received from him a degree of participation to the extent of the loving affection by which they adhered to him. But whereas because of the faculty of free will, a variety and diversity had taken hold of the individual souls so that one was attached to his creator by a more ardent and another by a feebler 
and weaker love, that that soul of which Jesus said, no one takes my soul from me, John 10, 18, adhering from the beginning of creation and ever after inseparably and indissolubly to him. As the wisdom and the word of God and the truth and the true life and receiving him wholly and passing into itself, into his light and splendor, uh, was made with him in a preeminent degree, one spirit, just as the apostle promises to those who ought to imitate him, that he is joined to the Lord in one spirit. So the idea here is the, the substance of the soul is mediating God and the flesh. It's clear there's, it's not possible for the, the nature of God to be mingled with flesh or the world apart from a mediator. And so Jesus is the, the God-man, the medium, the substance for which it being the, that substance for which it was certainly not contrary for nature to assume a natural body. So the Savior is eternally begotten by the Father. So also, if you possess the spirit of adoption, Romans 8.15, God eternally begets you in him according to each of your works, each of your thoughts, and being begotten, you thereby become an eternally begotten Son of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Herbert McCabe, you know, this is where he turns and uh, I'll conclude with this. This is Herbert McCabe argues that there is no such thing as the pre-existent Christ. It was invented, he suggests, in the 19th century as a way of distinguishing the eternal procession of the Son from the incarnation of the Son. That is to affirm that Jesus did not become Son of God in virtue of the incarnation. He was already Son of God. The Logos theology of John is going, uh, when we talk about metaphysics messing us up, this is, this is precisely where it seems mm. to take hold. He was already son of God before that. McCabe is rejecting this. Re McCabe uh, rejects this notion from two points of view. First, to speak of the pre-existent Christ is to imply that God has a life story, a divine story, other than the story of the incarnation. First, the Son of God pre-existed as just the Son of God, and then later he was the Son of God made man. This is incoherent and incompatible, at least with the traditional doctrine of God. There can be no succession in the eternal God, no change. Eternity is not, of course, a very long time. It is no time at all. Eternity is not timeless in the sense that an instant is timeless. No, eternity is timeless because it totally transcends time. There is no connection between time and eternity other than Christ Jesus. Hmm. Speaking of the Son of God becoming man or coming down from heaven, McCabe writes, makes a perfectly good metaphor but could not literally be true. From the point of view of God, then, subspecies eternitis, no sense can be given to the idea that at some point in God's life story, the Son became incarnate. Bear is equating McCabe's understanding with origin, and I think that gets it. That origin has given us this very 
sophisticated notion very early on, that's what we're going to lose. And when we lose this, I think we can say metaphysics, a bad metaphysics takes over. I'll pick up right there and ask you or say that one thing I appreciate about this week, this reading, this, this section of the class that is really made, the point is made, is that Origen is doing theology beyond anything that had ever been done before, I guess, right? I mean, I think so, yeah, yeah. He, he, he's taken the first principles, he's taken the hypothesis of Scripture, the confession that Christ is, is the Messiah, and he has just followed every possible implication that they could have for how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves, how we understand transcendence and eternity and the beyond, the, the seen and the unseen, and all those categories. And one way of looking at Origen, you know, and I'm new to really sit with him like this in, in depth, is he was risky. He was creative. And he was following, obviously, you know, trains of thought that he had that were outside, maybe, or right up against the, the boundaries of what well, certainly had ever been said before, but what would be what would be and will be considered orthodox. So I appreciate that about him and, and can see the the continuum of you got first principles, but then you also have, like Aristotle said, things that you know that are, I guess, deduced from first principles that you I, I use the word conjecture and, and wasn't sure in my answer to the first question, if that was a good one, but making inferences, conjectures, even speculation and imagination about how to say these things that like, I appreciate you saying they're unspeakable. They're, you know, words don't really fit. You have to really stretch. So he was willing to risk and stretch into a lot of these things that he was condemned for or misunderstood for. So doing theology, this is in part, the risk that we always take to say something new or to say something that is contextualized in our current context in a slightly different way. And I'm, I think we'll get to that maybe with, with Bart and a lot of the more modern uh, parallels to this, but do you? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. There's clearly a, uh, a risk of <laughs> being, I think he, he, he's a genius. Step one. The guy is just prolific. He, he writes so much. You know, he lays out in the beginning, he talks, he, he talks about homonyms. He says, you know, I'm going to use the same word, but I'm going to mean different things with the homonyms. That he's, he's using language in a very subtle, a very careful fashion. Ron Williams points out, you know, there's several meanings to the word creation. That is that creation is strictly only the, in, in a third sense, it's not always this, is strictly only the unimpeded expression of God's rational will. And he's following Proverbs 8.22. Origen can perhaps even speak of wisdom, the Son of God, as being a creature, though by this Origen clearly means something other than that was later understood as creation. Here is the rational expression of God's will in Christ. So he, he can talk about Christ as a creature, Christ as created, but it's a different order, of, a different meaning of the word. I, don't, I just don't think most people were up to reading Origin. 
you know, if you're trained in Greek philosophy and you think the Greeks are the, the be-all and end-all of human thought, I don't think you're ready for it. Or, you know, because it is, I think, that Samalikos is right, that it is a rejection of Platonic thought. It's a going beyond. I, and, and when we say Plato and Aristotle, I think that's the best you get. I think that's the best you get of human thought. Maybe what we've learned in seminary, Plato was a kind of evangelist. Maybe there's some ways in which there is an overlap. But I, I think that the, the tendency to try to fit Christian thought into a Greek frame is disastrous. And that's the disaster that we're living with. Just in the pew, you know, people don't know that their belief in the innate immortality of the soul, their belief in, you know, a lot of it is very Greek. I had to um, undergo, to some degree, as a freshman in college, and I was fortunate to go to a a Christian college with a good philosophy department and a good philosophy uh, professor, to de-Platonize my reading of Paul, you know, the New Testament. Because, you know, you, you can read about the unseen and eternal in Second Corinthians and kind of miss the First Corinthians 15 beginning point for, of resurrection and see Paul. And, of course, you can do this with John. I mean, we've seen Hall of Modern Scholarship called John a the Gnostic Gospel. You can take those Greek foundations. And if we could read it into Paul then or misunderstand Paul, then... How much more can we do that with origin? Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's the those of you who went through the John class, that, that was where we began in John. Oh, that John is a Gnostic, that we can read this, that he's been influenced by Gnostic, uh, a Gnostic. You know, again, that's the cons- the consensus of the scholarship. I think I think that what people tend to do, they want to, to fit the the biblical framework into an already existing framework. If you believe in Christianity, you believe that this is something new, that you believe this is a, a, a new order of thought. I think some people just don't believe that. They're Christians, but they believe that Christianity is just more of the same. And I think that tends to be the way that the scholarship works. For me, that's why the, the uh, bear is, I think, doing a unique thing. Does everybody got a grasp on origins, understanding of time and eternity? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think I do, <laughs> but you know, that's I, all right, Drew. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think maybe that's kind of the point is that that it's different from what been been taught in the past. So I, you know, I can kind of grasp that there's something different from what uh, you know I've been exposed to, but I wouldn't say that I have a good grasp of exactly what he's trying to say. Let me uh, take a run at it uh, from a totally different tack. This is the repetition for some of you. An understanding of the way that human knowledge works. Let's take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do you know what the good is? Well, the good is that which is over and against the evil. How do you know what the evil is? It's over and against the good. The identity through difference. This is Hegel. Hegel picks up Genesis and reads Genesis and says, oh yeah, here is the history of Good thing that man fall because now we can think. <laughs> Derrida reads Genesis with a Derrida is very much influenced by Hegelian thought, but he he's actually deconstructing Hegelian thought, and so he reads Genesis and actually reads it more Christian 
you know, even though he's an atheist, he's saying, well, this is actually an undoing of human thought. I think it is the case that uh, the way that human thought works, and this is true in the Greeks, it's always going to work through a dualism, through total differences. But understand when you say something is totally different, you can't compare two total differences, right? If they're totally different, you can't do what is happening in Genesis 3. You know, we know what good is because we know what evil is, or we know what evil is because of the good. Or what the in the East, they'll say, we know the yang through the yang and the yang through the yang. We know things through difference, complete difference. What is happening? I think we've seen it in Irenaeus. We've seen it all along, and we're seeing it in origin. Uh, I think it culminates in Maximus. They're going to say there are these absolute differences. There is God and earth. There is the spirit, and there is the flesh. But these things are brought together. These things that cannot be brought together otherwise are brought together in Christ. And this is then a new form of thought. This is the, I think, the Christological understanding that origin is working out in regard to time and eternity. Mm. Yes, God is timeless. Yes, he is eternal. But Christ is the God-man. He brings eternity into time. Here is the eternal invading time. And that just blows our categories apart. And thus, the strange sayings like, the cross is an eternal fact about God. And origin that's the way Origen's reading the Old Testament, that he's going to say, well, you know, what has happened in Christ has always happened, in a sense. It's always hmm. already happened. And they then are just, they are reflecting this reality. One thing I liked in Westerholm, I read that chapter. Um, I'm not sure how it applies to any of this, but that was close. So I'll say it now. Is somewhere Origen said, or maybe Westerholm said about Origen, that um, we don't have Old and New Testament. We have two New Testaments. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's all made new. Yeah. It's breaking the time barrier is the way that I, mm -hmm. I thought of it. Uh, it's very it, Einsteinian, maybe. Yeah. It reminds me of a book I read a long time ago called Flatland. These uh, shapes that all exist in a two-dimensional plane, and that they interact with each other in different ways. So there's lines, and then there's there's squares and triangles and circles, and they all see each other as lines themselves because in two dimensions anything looks like a line along that plane but then all of a sudden there's this uh, a sphere that uh, breaks through the two-dimensional plane and the way they see the sphere is as a circle that gets bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller and they could disappear entirely and then reappear and so the, the problem is, is that they're used to seeing in this two-dimensional space, but the sphere exists in a, a different dimensionality. So it, it, its appearance doesn't obey, doesn't follow the typical laws that they would associate with an object. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I'm kind of going in that, that idea that, you know, the timeless reality intersects 
with ours and and we can understand it as as kind of an event that event even though we would think of it as a moment in time according to our own reality it's it's not actually that actually it is that but it is also the the eternal unfolding of god's revelation as it intersects our own time is that unreasonable yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. no that's it that's it that uh, the, I, I'm familiar with the concept on a two two dimensional plane. A, you know, you can't see a sphere, and it, the movement of the sphere is it's going to look like a circle. Doing, yeah, I think that's it. That we're we we are talking about the the simple word for this is apocalyptic thought. Uh, okay, I saw and that a lot. Yeah, I didn't go through bare stuff on apocalyptic, but the idea is that. You know what is happening on heaven and earth in, in an apocalyptic understanding that in a sense heaven has come to earth in christ so that the heavenly is now taking place in the earthly realm you know this is jacob's ladder the angels mm-hmm. ascending and descending but this is the whole life of christ this is christ as true temple the one who who is true temple true sacrifice so uh, yeah, it, it, I think it's the point of departure that you mentioned earlier, of course, when you were starting to talk through your thoughts, Paul, was the point of departure being origins. All these questions that we'll talk about in a minute, at least in relation to time and eternity, he started with uh, the end, the eternality of, of the human being, human soul, by recognizing that the way we end up, according to the Apostle Paul, is in the not seen and eternal world or whatever you would call it, you know, that our, our final state is some form of being eternal and immaterial. Starting from that point, he redefined what eternity past would look like and how if it was truly eternal, then um, that's where he got the eternality of the, of the soul. Clearly misunderstood in church history. But looking at it um, th- through this lens of apocalyptic revelation all at once in the, the death and divinity of Christ, <laughs> it's too much to, to sum up. But it's, it's helpful to see that as the point of departure, that that's yeah. where he started was the, the end and then reached back to the beginning and said everything in between is another way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, you're not going to have time when you go to Columbus here uh, in a couple of weeks, but um, in the Amish community, there's a, a Mennonite museum just uh, kind of north and east of Columbus there. And you go in there and they have this room. It's a circular room with a mural on it. It conveys the, uh, the Mennonite Amish history and ties it in, you know, with the cross and everything, but it's circular. In some sense, there is no beginning, no end. I wonder if that's some some of the same thought that they had. Yeah, it's all encompassing. Yeah. Uh, our language has been spoiled here. You know, I want to use the word predestination, predetermined, but of course, that all that raises all the wrong images because the picture is well, the 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 telos, the creative purpose that was there. We see it in the end. That was always there. Origen uses the term principle as his starting point for reading scripture. 
This principle precedes his treatment of Scripture, but it is in light of this principle that he reads Scripture. What is the principle, and how does it function to open or even constitute Scripture? You know, I, I guess I was thinking that this the principle was similar to the hypothesis that that Irenaeus talked about. It's kind of a lens from with which to interpret Scripture. Um, and so specifically, that would be that, you know, Jesus Christ is uh, both fully human and fully divine and was incarnate on earth and suffered death and resurrection, basically, and, and was a, which was foretold in the, the scriptures. Yeah, he's writing on first principles. I think he's just extrapolating on the rule of faith. And so he's going to talk about there's two kinds of preaching or thinking. There's the apostolic preaching, and then there is the ecclesiological or ecclesiastical, you know, and I think he's talking about extrapolating on that. We need to build upon the rule of faith. And here is the first book in the world, you know, in a sense, to extrapolate from the gospel. In this section, I guess I set out the page numbers. The word theosis is not used, but the transformation of the person in Christ is depicted. What is central in this depiction in regard to human transformation, which is the goal of reading Scripture? Not a great question, but I ho hope your answer is better than my question. I didn't know if that's where he was talking about the, uh, the acquisition of virtues. In this process, we don't shed our bodies or become bodiless, but uh, we become one with the eternal uh, where we are purged from our vices and by uh, really, in some sense, by God's consuming fire in that, that transformation. Obviously, one day our bodies uh, will be purged with new bodies. And so, but uh, the process begins with our, our, our minds on uh, the trans, that transformation. I think. Uh, did he say uh, those things in a sense that are right now, that process is those things that we don't see, the kind of the invisible, uh, those are, that's beginning. So am I anywhere close or? Yeah, 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 that's it. You know, I, I saw in, in there the uh, part where <clears throat> scripture has levels of meaning and he correlated them to body, soul, and spirit. When you get to like the body is the body's, sense is the maybe the literal or what we would call even the historical um, may or may not be true I think he even said at one point at least parts of it but the soul is one level deeper of there's a sense of apprehending what is being said in scripture that that goes a little deeper than than that you know the literal or the surface you know quick first reading but the one beyond that is spirit level and it's one he called, he used the word, the divine sense. And that it's that is the goal, like the, the meaning of, of each scriptural passage. Um, and the scripture is different from each other. Some of it's milk and some of it's meat. Hmm. But moving as you read scripture over a lifetime and through your discipleship to a deeper and deeper understanding of those senses toward the divine sense is also a maturing of your faith is also 
participation is what we talked about ethically, uh, uh, taking it up into yourself. Uh, cathectically, I think that's the word I learned, the new one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so apprehending the divine sense of scripture, that's the goal. And it's over a lifetime that we're transformed in the process. And then I have to throw this in here because you have to say this about origin. He meant even transformation of our bodies materially into new creation and ultimately what was unseen and eternal. That's the goal. Even our bodies are transformed, but certainly our souls uh, as we get the divine sense of scripture over a lifetime. You know, this is the thing. He talks about the metal being held into the fire. Yeah. And, you know, of course, with Christ, the idea is that, oh, there is the fire. But as we're all transformed into Christ, the same process occurs. Same substance, but the fire, in a sense, transforms that substance. I don't know if you've ever seen a forge, you know, where they're heating up a horseshoe. Mm -hmm. You can take one of the hardest forms of steel and you can just, becomes liquid. That's how he describes the change from... um, material bodily existence into the likeness of of christ and the the fuller image of god the whole use of the word emanation and catabole of of the foundation uh, is that creation was something that was thrown down and scattered outward from god so that the the material and this is the classic greek view of emanation that the material world is the outer edges of reality pushed further out from God. But taking that analogy, not taking the, the full implications and meaning of it, but recognizing that, that God is spirit and that God has what we'd call heat as the consuming fire. Um, this is an immaterial property. It's pure energy, I guess. But as we are emanated or catabolade, casting down out from God in that model, you're cooled. Your material properties and your maybe spiritual properties as well are cooled, and that the process of divinization or theosis or, you know, through this divine sense of Scripture is a move back towards, through the reheating, I guess, or the, you know, iron fuses the heat of iron fuses into the properties of the metal itself it changes and it transforms and it makes something completely new that was a very powerful analogy is the hot and cold part yeah yeah i just found on page 53 in isaiah referring to um a few passages there and if if the bodiless god is said to be a consuming fire as Origen had explained in the opening paragraphs of point 1.1, it is not because he consumes bodily matter. Is it that when we have a body and we're filled with what comes next is the evil thoughts, wicked actions, desire for sin. We have a body. We are preoccupied with these things that maybe we're unable to partake of the divine nature or and I may be throwing lots of newer or uh, mixed up theology in here. I know it's all Christian, but 
we want we're trying to distinguish what what he means but is this burning or consuming of the not of the body as it says but of these evil thoughts and desires for sin if that's burned up it says it makes us capable of receiving his word and wisdom so the word and wisdom if that's put there in place of the evil desires and actions and thoughts then we become a different form or a different kind of being a heavenly being but with a body yeah. I'm not sure how to ask that question, but when I ran across that, I'm, I'm just wondering what does it mean? What does theosis mean? And is matter, I know matter is not evil. Participation, transformation, that we're transformed into, into God. In the West, we don't, may not say it that way, but the idea is the full participation in, in who God is. But in Origen's view, and I, I, it's, actually it's just kind of a, a logic, that everything other than God has a body. It's contained. God's the only uncontained thing. And so when Origen is talking about the body, it, first of all, he's not Platonic, but as Brian pictured it, there is certainly the idea that the world, the body, the, the, that we're transformed, it's the same stuff, but the white-hot heat of God transforms it like a piece of metal in the fire. So is is it the dross of the material body that's burnt away? No, but I think you're right. No, it's the, the it's the evil or it's the weight. It's the you know he pictures the body as being, in a sense, uh, made more more solid or made capable capable of receiving his word and wisdom. Yeah, I mean, to me, theosis is the process of human beings becoming by grace what Christ is by nature. Right. So, you know, Christ has a body. The incarnate Christ has a body. It's transfigured. Yeah, we're, we're, do, we're doing theosis. I mean, that's clear in origin. The, the focus on Psalms, the, the picture of the human transformation. I, I hate to use the language of East and West, but it's at least in this case, it's a handy category that in the East, they are going to continue to talk about theosis. But Augustine is going to reject the doctrine. He doesn't like it. Do we lose it? Surely not. We've got John Wesley and sanctification and moving on to perfection, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think you can lose something so central, but certainly we're going to talk about it differently. Well, the insight of, uh, of Erasmus was a single page of origin teaches more Christian philosophy than 10 of Augustine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh, uh-oh. I was going to say, we do get all confused over uh, soteriology in that, I mean, in the Wesleyan tradition, which is, you know, what I have been, is you start talking about different types of grace, provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. In what we've seen in Arrhenius and what we see in Origen here is the soteriology of, us, of, of you know, Christ, assume, God assuming our nature so that we can assume his nature you lose that in very strange way i think particularly when we start talking about justification um you 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 lose sight of that completely to more judicial analogies yeah we've we've multiplied kinds of grace (laughs) a kind of out of necessity maybe in the section an eternal creation is presented one of the most sophisticated 
and widely misunderstood depictions of relationship between time and eternity. Run that down for us. This is a biggie. Well, I think what Bear is pointing out, the origin, what origin is doing, looking at Wisdom 725 and the titles of Christ and God, is to point out that creation is occurring or is grounded in the relationship between the Father and the Son. So that you read this earlier in our in our lecture tonight, this part of Bear, where Origen talks about God is Father before He's Almighty, and we know He's Father before He's Almighty because the Father is Almighty through the Son, and so it's through that relationship that God is is Almighty, and if it's through that relationship that He's Almighty, well, then by necessity to be Almighty, you have to be almighty over something or have power over something. And so that places creation right um, between the relationship of the father and the son. And by the nature of what it, how God is almighty in that origin points back to God's almightiness, not in exertion of force and necessity, but back to the Philippians two, the Christ song we talked about all the, all niche about the Christ. Well, why do they do that? They do that because of reason and wisdom and persuasion and ultimately of, of the cross um, that were persuaded to follow Christ, that were persuaded um, to be subjugated to Christ because of his self-giving love on the cross. And so here we see both creation uh, being grounded in the relationship between father, son, and at the cross itself. And so we've moved how we typically think about, or at least a, the, our common sense of creation, either occurring at the beginning of time or God holding us in existence at all time, to see creation as an ongoing project that culminates in Christ at the cross. And the stuff on the cross, it's there and bare, but it, uh, uh, he's reflecting on origin, I think is key, that here is the point at which the fullness of the glory of God is revealed because here is the completion of the victory, you know, the, the, of the work of God. Here is the fullness of the incarnation. I also like the part of that where Bear pointed out that not only starting at the end, but recognition that the response from creation is required and Christ completes that fulfills that he is the amen saying yes to the father through the holy spirit that just completes the circle um, yeah the quote quote is it the quotation from revelation that you have the amen in, <laughs> you know it's all joined together in in one apocalyptic vision yeah he sweeps up and closes the door <laughs> yeah how might it be that humans are eternal it's our end yeah, to be brought into union with God so that he is all in all. Bear does us a huge favor here because everybody's going to say, oh, he believes in uh, the preexistence of souls. And no, that's, I didn't get it. In other words, no, that, that we were made for eternity. This is what, this is who and what we are. It's not that we're innately that way, but this is what we were made for. And then the last one, explain why Origen is not describing the heresy of adoption. Bear just says, he's not doing that, but could be so mistakenly conceived. I think this on this question, 
um, I'll try to put some words to the big thought is when I think of Origen being condemned as a heretic, a Platonic, Neoplatonic, or Stoic, it's very similar to the fact that he's accused of it, but when you start to look beyond the surface and go deeper into what he's saying, you recognize that he's much less of a dualist than you are, O accuser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that this it is a repeat in some sense and what we talked about with with John. I had kind of a lengthy answer answer on this oh give it to us the early church along with john the evangelist may appear to us to have taught that the logos of god was the pre-existent or pre-incarnate christ origin speaking not only about jesus christ but also about all human beings says that the human soul as the necessary medium by which god became flesh is in varying degrees attached to God, stronger or weaker, according to our free will. And you read that quote earlier about the fact that basically it's the idea of emanation, you know, tempered, but that human beings are one substance with God in a sense, in the sense that body, soul shares in the the nature of God. Um, But we do it in varying degrees. We also participate in God's virtue in varying degrees. So this uh, attachment of the soul to God or adherence to of the soul within God, if we look at it from the perspective of emanation alone and mistakenly read origin in that light, we may see origin as saying that Jesus was the embodiment or the enfleshment of a pre-incarnate logos, a theory which is itself a kind of adoption heresy concerning the God-man, that Jesus Christ, being God, was a pre-existent soul somehow assumed or adopted by God. The Logos, being God, somehow adopted a soul so that man and God, through adoption, at least for a limited time, became one between the conception, the Immaculate Conception, and then his ascension. There's Rowan Williams' book, you know, sort of book-ended chapter in God's life is the incarnate word. That's not what Origen is saying. But he actually talks about the soul as something that Jesus, he, he points out how Jesus lays his soul down voluntarily in John 10, 18. That being in the context of crucifixion and that the variety of responses or scattered humans around him was the context of crucifixion and not that emanation and not the context of a pre-incarnate logos in the world. Origen, looking through the cross, and that's the key, there's the hypothesis. Origen, taking the hypothesis, sees Jesus as a human soul and body, pre-existing only in the sense that we all pre-exist through foreknowledge and election and foreordination. There's that eternal you know, that big eternal view, that things that God knows beforehand and he determines beforehand, there's never a time when it wasn't true. Jesus is unique in that he is not merely one soul with God, one body with God, as we all are, according to what Origen taught. We are all 
have part of that divine soul in us. And that was the way Neoplatonists talked was a divine spark within the soul that comes, that's still there through emanation, you know, and he turned it on his head because the material wasn't unholy. The material was just a part of the soul and the emanated creation cast down as a foundation, part of the foundation. But this was the kicker. And the distinction was that Jesus while we are not, Jesus was one in spirit with God, and he was unique in that way. And, and there's his divinity um, that came through, not as uh, an adopted, in an adopted form. It was his divinity come through as a be- only begotten son. This is unique from the Father. This is a oneness that only one person originally shares with the Father. And it's the son. And that oneness of spirit is something that the adoption heresy, I don't know a whole lot about, but I'm guessing that it had to do with the fact that that in Christ's incarnation, he was becoming something sort of temporary. It was like that book ended. He, he started as a man and he, he worked his way to becoming God. But this is focused on the, um, the obedience of Christ as uh, a submissive and humble son to the will of the father, becoming obedient even to the extent of death. That is his glory. That is his deification. That is his, that is the summation of his nature. It's everything unfolds from there so that his sonship is not uh, an assumed temporary form. It's, it's that of uh, only begotten son. Yeah, if you leave out Origen's picture of the relationship between time and eternity, you miss that, then it would be easy to misunderstand what what he's doing or what really the New Testament is describing. You might mistake it as adoptionism, that, oh, he became God. Well, there is the sense that time is a reality and something is really happening, but that this is who Christ always is. In other words, this this reality that is unfolding in time is an eternal fact about God, about who God is. So just a, just a little tip, you guys. If uh, The thing that I was taking most with Origin, well, first of all, if you're going to read First Principles, read John Baer's translation because it's by far the best. But his homilies are not difficult like First Principles are uh, or is. Um, his he has a whole collection of homilies on different books of the Bible that, in my opinion, are just as profound, just as good. They're just they're they're like their sermons that he's teaching to, you know, his students. Um, and he is he's profound there. You know what I mean? But he's doing a lot of really cool stuff. That's where I was really the most taken with him was like his homilies on Joshua, his homilies on Numbers. Um, he has homilies on Leviticus, Genesis, on the Psalms, on Jeremiah, you know, a bunch of the books of the Old Testament. And he he really applies his hermeneutic there in different really cool ways that will, first of all, will just preach. I don't know if you guys are any, but uh, interested in that. But it's just like, man, he just, I'm just underlining stuff and, you know, writing notes in the mark. It's, it's like really fun stuff to read, especially his, uh, like his homilies on Joshua numbers are just... I mean, I was like, numbers? How do you make numbers interesting? And Origin makes it like one of the coolest books in the Bible. You know, just the way he goes through and shows you it's like the soul's ascent to God kind of thing. 
and he shows you exactly how, you know, uh, it's just, I would, I would encourage anybody that if, if first principles is a little too technical or, or, or whatever, that his homilies are just fun. Like they, they'll minister to your soul. The other thing that, that I would, I would suggest if you want to learn more about origin, uh, the Westminster handbook to origin is fantastic. It's like 25 bucks. And basically it just kind of goes through the different major kind of like topics and it's all it's all written by you know essays of all different types of origin scholars you know Ronald Heine all those guys McGuckin all those anybody who loves origin contributes there and uh, it's a it's just a really fun book to read it's just very okay. very interesting thank you I love I love hearing your enthusiasm and of course yours Paul too as a second order enthusiasm after Matt's it really endears uh, encourages if not. You know, Bear does too. But you know, just your reading, Matt, is pretty cool to to be in the wake of. It's exciting. It's exciting stuff. I, yeah, I, yeah. Matt, Matt got me uh, steered toward origin. So, I think once you find, you know, once you find someone like that, like for me personally, I'm trying to read through his whole corpus, not to be cool, but just because it's that it's that worth the, my time and investment and money. You know what I mean? So. It's just uh, for for spiritual formation. He is the first theologian, right? I mean, like uh, Didymus the Blind called him the 13th apostle. You know what I mean? So it's like when you read, it's like, and then all these other guys, Gregory of Nyssa, all the Catholic, Gregory the theologian, uh, you know, Basel, all those guys there. And then all throughout, you know, the early church history, they're building upon origin. A lot of times they're not, they're not using his name because of the originist controversies that follow, you know, his life. Uh, with Evagrius of Ponticus and those guys. But, I mean, Evagrius, if you ever read that guy, who was the kind of like the main guy that they were kind of coming after with those originist controversies, like, I mean, he has an awesome book called Talking Back, and it's a book about, it's like demonology, and it's, a, it's using scriptures to combat, you know what I mean, the uh, temptations and the various demons and stuff that you come across. So, so these guys are all um, in, in the whole monastic uh, tradition, too. They're all reading, you know, origin stuff, and, and a lot of them's from the from the different homilies. So, yeah, I, I would just encourage James, just pick up the homilies on Joshua, and then and just you'll you'll see you'll see what I mean. I think it may have been a statement there, Bear. I I meant to read it, but you know, kind of the summation. Oh, here is the first coherent, comprehensive, uh, you know, understanding of the Christian worldview. That here's the first one to lay out, and of course. Mm -hmm. There is a sense that everybody working after him is going to work within that the world that he's he's laying out, and of course he's going to get some stuff. You know, if these these things are going to take hundreds of years to unfold and refine, you know. So of course, I mean, he's such a daring he's daring in his speculation. So of course, you know, he's going to get some things. Maybe the the technical language that will come later in Nicaea and stuff like that. You know, it's like it's, uh, but but for someone who's doing what he's doing, he's kind of just. Uh, kind of like springing into the breach you know what i mean into the in, you know he, he's he's creating it as, as you go so like someone like maximus the confessor i think is a great example of someone who takes origins thought and, and even like lifts it even higher kind of like orthodoxy you know kind of makes it more uh orthodox or whatever but, but it's a great discussion today there's a um uh, if you ever john bear is on that was on the on script podcast when his when his uh, uh translation of origin came out yeah. And he mentioned that his wife asked him who the church fathers would be if they were played soccer. Yeah. He said, no, Justin Martyr would be on offense, a forward. Um, Arrhenius would be on defense, which is against the heresies. 
And Origin was the kid who picked up the ball and ran off the field with it and invented rugby. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone now plays rugby. <laughs> plays rugby. He, he started the – he created the, the, the game, you know. I yeah. love that. Yeah. That's a great uh, – if, if you guys listen to that podcast, that's actually a really fun um, – that on-script podcast with John Bear. He's, he's great to listen to. He's uh he's just full of that same kind of like passion and it to me someone like Bear it's like man if you know someone of that caliber just in terms of his Christian sort of spirituality it's like man if it's good enough for him to invest in someone like Irenaeus and Origin and some and now he's writing the you know doing those stuff with Gregory of Nyssa he's retranslating on what's normally been called like on the making of man I think his title something like on the creating of the human image or something like that but um it's like man if he's gonna go through and do that work it's gotta be worth my time and energy you know what i mean he's been super helpful he has a really cool book called the mystery of christ that, that paul used way back in our um days back in like bib theo you know like i can't remember if it was like advanced bib theo but it's called the mystery of christ it has like great ratings on amazon it's a really cool little book what might have been most telling to me tonight was when Paul said that um, origin may have foreshadowed Einstein. Is Did you say that? Yeah. I did say that. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Theory of relativity. That's, it's all there. <laughs> and isn't it terrible? I mean, you know, it's, it is terrible that origin has this great quote and I'll, I, I won't be able to say it verbatim, but he basically says, you know, what I want to be known as is a man of the church, you know? And he says, mm. but if I, your right arm, you know, if it would be better for you to cut off your right arm, cast, you know, cast it away, then, you know, do it, you know? So he was, he was always saying with his stuff, like, look, if you have a better suggestion or reading or, or allegorization or whatever, you know, then, then go with that. If you have something more helpful. And he, and that's the big thing with first principles. He, he's very clear there that he says, this is just speculative. I'm, this is, I'm not dogmatic. This is not meant to be dogmatic. These are speculations, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he gets, in other words, he ends up getting condemned, you know, not, not so much even for the views that he had, but for the people who followed after him who end up trying to dogmatize, you know, a lot of his speculations. There's a very kind of painful, <laughs> painful tradition there, you know, that, that culminates there with the, the Fifth Ecumenical Council that anathematizes him. It's just such a tragedy. It's such a, to me, it's such a terrible, uh, you know, and I'm an Orthodox Christian, you know what I mean? So, so, so for me, it's like, I, I, they, I think that the church needs to repent and needs to apologize like they did with St. Nectarios. You know, they, they issued a formal uh, apology about St. Nectarios and said, you know, we, and then they canonized them. They said, we got it wrong. So to me, I, hopefully the, the work that these guys are doing, you know, that, that someone will recognize him and his contribution and, you know, and, and I, I say start commissioning the iconography and, and everything, you know what I mean? That's that's where I'm at on it, but it'll never happen. It's a testament to um, to our class here to recognize this, that I think what Bear is doing and going back through all of these folks, really, but Origin in particular, is he's taking the, the lens of the hypothesis and reading Origin. It shows the, the, the power of of in, of the gospel and of interpretation and and of it appears to me that's what he's doing and, and he I know he's doing more than that more than I could ever do as a as a you know a wannabe scholar but his approach essentially seems to be just that 
John Bear is a worthy guy. You know, he's got the linguistic abilities. And right. his, his affirmation of Tzamalikos, uh, who is even, uh, in a sense, even more brilliant and more focused on origin. You know, it's too late for me. But you guys, you know, you could... <laughs> well, not, I mean, I like that. I mean, you know, um, John Bear is a priest. You know, that says a lot, right? He's a priest. He, he's, you know, he has the pastoral concerns with all this stuff too, you know? You know, the thing that's really, I don't know, super kind of like bones me out is that, you know, Origen accompanied a lot of his student, uh, students to martyrdom. I mean, he literally, uh, he, he himself, you know, he, uh, was going to be martyred if it wasn't for his mom. You know, she hid his clothes. He wanted to go be martyred, you know, with his father who was martyred. He was he was ready to die for this thing, you know, and he did. He was put on the rack, you know, and he was tortured to death. And, you know, he died uh, years later from the injuries that he sustained there. And then he was anathematized 300 years after he died in the peace of the church. That's against canon law. I did a blog on uh, origin and nonviolence. And I didn't want to focus on that, but I hope everybody understands. Oh, that's still the focus. And that's there in origin. It, it's just so presumed mm -hmm. you know, that we really with him it's just everything that he's doing and including you know when he's taking these students training them for martyrdom i mean they're going to be you know that he's preparing them and the way he prepares them is that they be totally at peace non-violent in their response to the people that are killing them mm -hmm. yeah to not lose i mean he you know he to to not lose the faith in the sense that, that that even as they're hitting you and torturing you or cutting you into pieces or whatever to not even curse them in your heart that's what he's training so he has a really cool book it's called exhortation to martyrdom it's in like this little book with uh, i think it's on prayer um but even that you know is a is a really cool work so yeah we, we really could you were you know we could talk for hours and, and hours and just keep going on with this different stuff but i think that you know, there's a couple of people I think you find like that on your journey, you know, that are worth taking an extended kind of time with them, you know, taking a couple of years, maybe even, and just kind of sitting with them. And for me, I, you know, just reading Origin, it's like, I just want to kind of, uh, you know, just immerse myself in his thought world, you know, to kind of just try to become really like him. He's just one of the greatest Christian writers I've just ever encountered. He's the best. I think he's the best. I mean, I think you know, he's got to be among the best to ever do it. And uh, that doesn't mean he didn't get stuff wrong. All right. is <laughs> This is heavy stuff. Uh, in, in a sense, I think we culminate. We're going to develop this in the East through the Cappadocian Fathers through Maximus. They all are just building on origin. Is everybody happy? We could talk about origin another couple of hours if y'all wanted to. I'm sorry. We I, I kept you late. I, I talked too much to begin with. I'm going to read more next week, so I'll be happier next week. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I usually try to put out a blog on Thursday. The blog is very often a kind of concentrated look at what we've done in the class. I wish you luck with this one. It, it's origin is so much fun, but man, he is, uh, of course, he's just, he's huge. We appreciate you guys, and we'll see you. Next Tuesday, and next Tuesday, uh, we'll be less happy with Augustine. Less than Augustine. But, but more happy because we read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You say, turn on your heat a little bit, Paul. 
Yeah, boy, I'm saving money. <laughs> gonna get, gonna get sick, but you saving money. Yeah. See you guys. Good All baseball. right. Good night. Good night. God bless you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.